welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And today we are delivering to you our long-awaited episode about the Hudson Institute. Abby's going to join me for the discussion. So without delaying any further, here we go. Robbie, it's really important to look at Trumpism, not only as like a retrospective, but see the lasting effects of Trumpism and this kind of notion of right populism and how it's now used by the GOP to tap into the population, you know, using this notion of right populism to try to continue to keep Trumpism alive. And you're pretty much an expert on like think tanks in general, what think tanks are behind what policy, which ones are the ones that we need to be paying attention to most in DC. Of course, a very heavy agenda, your epic documentary um, focused in on on think tanks, you know, the Kagan family, stuff like that. You have been doing quite a bit of research on another think tank um, that is particularly relevant right now because of what we've been talking about. And that's called the Hudson Institute. Um, why are you fixated on this think tank in particular? Why don't you explain what this think tank is and who's a part of it? Well, so I think, uh, the, so the concept of Trumpism, I think we need Mm -hmm. to like explain it it, when it comes to the Hudson Institute by saying first that it is try to separate Trump from the equation and think of where Trumpism and sort of the MAGA movement sort of evolved from you could argue it sort of came from the Tea Party. And mm-hmm. the Tea Party was sort of like a, a co-opted version of some kind of like, not necessarily the truther movement, but like kind of uh, like a libertarian, anti-war, early populist kind of a thing that was like fringe, alt-media centered. And then, you know, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz came out of the Tea Party movement. So... The, the MAGA movement, the Trump movement, is sort of like the newest iteration of that. And it serves this useful purpose, I think, which is basically controlled opposition. If you can, if the establishment can kind of co-opt a lot of this language that feels like it's opposed to the establishment, but then sort of water it down, co-opt it, and, and distort the, the purpose of it and the goals of it to serve some kind of nefarious agenda for the establishment, then it, I think it's very useful. I mean, this is why someone like Ted Cruz was really useful for the establishment during the Tea Party days, because he was essentially a total establishment think tank neocon puppet pushing fake libertarianism. That was sort of the early flavor of Trumpism and this sort of fake right populism guys. Rand Paul smartly stayed away from the think tank circuit, but eventually, as we know, became Trump's doormat during the Trump era. And maybe that's because Trump was doing the carrot on a stick sort of psyop behind the scenes to Rand Paul and Ron Paul's family. Because apparently Ron Paul's grandson-in-law was still had a felony charge on his record, and Trump essentially expunged that. But during the Tea Party era, when Ted Cruz was sort of playing this interesting role, we didn't have any other quasi-right populists that were sort of in the mainstream until the Trump era, like Josh Hawley or Tucker Carlson. 
and I don't mean right populist in a real sense. I'm, I'm cringing and wincing as I say that. So I hone in on the Hudson Institute because it appears to be the first DC think tank to successfully merge Trumpism, the sort of phony anti-establishment views and fake right populist rhetorical framing from Trumpism with neoconservative and hawkish foreign policy. So I think that this actually makes it uniquely dangerous and it will continue to have an influence, you know, far beyond Trump as a figure in politics, because Mm -hmm. I think this is the first time I've ever seen in my time doing this work or doing the podcast with you, Mm -hmm. where I've actually seen neoconservative views getting injected into like alt media to the point Mm -hmm. where it's like really sketchy, like, like figures from, um, you know, the, this think tank, for example, are becoming little celebrated heroes in alt media and people, you know, even people who listen to our podcast, uh, argue with me quite a bit on this subject because they really, uh, grew to like this figure. And I'll, I'll just say his name is Cigar on Jetty of, uh, the Hill Rising, um, who's from Hudson. But yeah, that's basically it in a nutshell, why I think this think tank is particularly dangerous. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned this on our exclusive podcast for patrons, but I think it is a really problematic framing to have someone like Crystal Ball, who is a genuine progressive, juxtaposed as if they are equal with Sagar Jetty, who is a stealth neocon working for this think tank, when it frames itself as this anti-establishment, like you know, populist kind of thing, when he openly was supporting Trump. I mean, Trump and him were like on his Twitter banner for the longest time. And I think that's a really, really problematic thing because why why are these people doing this project together? You know, what, what exactly is the intent of a show like that? Um, to me, it seems like people will watch because of Crystal and then be swayed into this kind of stealth neocon framing from someone like Sagar. Um, and they also bring on... A lot of people from our scene too, like as guests. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, who, so do you want to talk more about like Sagar and other people who are part of this think tank and the reach that they have? Let's loop. Yeah, let's loop back around to him. Let's start at yeah. the beginning of of how it started because it's pretty bizarre. I mean, once I mm-hmm. looked into it, um, I knew it had more of a neocon, openly neocon background than it has now, but I didn't realize that almost for its entire duration up until like year two into the Trump administration did it actually try to rebrand into this sort of right populist thing. It was Mm. actually just openly neocon hawkish establishment shit, you know, military kind of shit um, the whole time for like decades and decades since the 1960s. When was it? Oh, okay. When was it started? The 1960s. Okay. 61. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and the guy who founded it was this Rand Corporation top dog uh, named Herman Kahn. And if you haven't heard of this guy before, he's well known for being a military strategist um, and a futurist, apparently, although I don't know much about his views in that regard. Although I'll tell you some things that make it that, you know, lend some credibility to the fact that he was a very cutting edge thinker and, and but in like bad ways. So this guy is actually the founder of the Hudson Institute. Um, two other people who founded the Hudson Institute with him, uh, one was a young recruit from Rand Corporation. He was uh, hired to run the PR end of the think tank. And Oscar M., Oscar M. 
Rubhausen. Uh, he was an advisor to the then governor, Nelson Rockefeller. So, so Herman Kahn got someone sort of from local politics, you know, New York politics, and sort of someone to run like PR marketing for this think tank. But Herman Kahn is not famous for starting the Hudson Institute. He actually became a figure in pop culture because he was so influential on the way people thought about the Cold War, especially the U.S. government. The Hudson Institute in 2010 published a paper called Herman Kahn, Public Nuclear Strategy 50 Years Later, a compendium of highlights from Herman Kahn's works on nuclear strategy by John Wallstetter. In 1962, the Natural Resources Journal, issue number one, volume two, wrote a book review of Herman Kahn's book on thermonuclear war. The book review is written by John P. Frank. The heart of the Kahn book is an analysis of what is to be learned from military history reaching into the past to World War I. He projects possible wars which might occur in the future, looking to a hypothetical World War VIII, which he suggests might occur in 1973. In his descriptions of those wars which have not yet occurred, he gives us the trend and development of missile systems and of the potential for destruction in the next 15 years. Kahn believes that with reasonable safeguards, there is some substantial possibility that a very large fraction of the American population and of American life may survive a missile war. Assuming maximum radiation, but assuming that 3 billion persons are still alive, Kahn estimates that in the first generation to be born after their period of destruction, approximately 1 million persons who would not otherwise be thus afflicted will be born with major defects, that 10 million will have minor defects, and that 2 and 1.5 million will die earlier than would otherwise have been the case, and that 5 million will be less fertile than they otherwise would, but the consequences go echoing throughout time for up to 10,000 years. And Kahn estimates that approximately 350 million subsequent persons will be adversely affected in one of the ways in consequence of that much radiation being loosed on the world. Now this book review goes on and on, but the theme that keeps coming up again and again is that Kahn advocates for not even just a first strike if we need to do it, but he also advocates for psychologically making the Soviet Union think that we're preparing for a first strike by creating a civil defense force, not for a defensive war, but for a quote-unquote preventative war, preemptive war. Sounds awfully neoconservative, doesn't it? Now, this book on thermonuclear war that Herman Kahn wrote in 1962, it's actually the inspiration for the doomsday machine from Dr. Strangelove. Not only is it the inspiration for the concept of the machine, and for those who haven't seen the movie, this is a spoiler. Let's stop listening if you haven't seen Doctor Strange. I've just fast forward about a few minutes. The Doomsday Machine, as proposed by Herman Kahn, would create a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world with a series of nuclear weapons. And the concept was it was a deterrent so that the other side wouldn't attack you because if they did, it would set off a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world. 
mutually assured destruction, but in a completely different way than we understand it now. This is like a mad scientist doomsday machine. You can find Herman Kahn's book on thermonuclear war online as a PDF. I'll link it in the show notes if you're a Patreon subscriber. But Herman Kahn's book on thermonuclear war wasn't just the inspiration for the doomsday machine in the movie Dr. Strangelove. Herman Kahn himself was actually partly the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. Now, I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg with that book review of On Thermonuclear War. Herman Kahn, when you really boil it down, is responsible for almost every sort of fear-mongering or cold equation, long-game game theory, Cold War trope that you've probably heard of, not just from pop culture, movies, film, but also that actually influenced the U.S. government itself perhaps having even more influence than any think tanker character that I've ever researched, besides maybe Irving Kristol. So he was a very influential person. Um, he didn't officially have a position in the U.S. government, but kind of almost like you know the Kagan family, they don't have official positions in the U.S. government. They're very, very influential on the policy. That's kind of like this situation. Um, and... Uh, you know, originally Hudson was only about military strategy and the use of nuclear power and like, you know, nuclear war strategy. Uh, the Kennedy administration uh, was also very influenced by his thinking on uh, nuclear deterrence, they would call it, which was really just like hawkish, crazy ideas written down on paper of how to like win a nuclear war. Hold on, let me get this straight, Robbie, because this is a pretty shocking admission here. The character in Dr. Strangelove was inspired in part by the guy who was initially involved in the Hudson Institute. That's not, not initially insane. involved, but who started it. I mean, the main who guy. Who started it. Yeah. The main dude behind the Hudson, mm -hmm. Hudson Institute was the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove, the character in Dr. Strangelove. Partly. That's incredible. Yeah, there was, he was That's based incredible. on. It is. And he was based on a couple other people. I can't remember that off the top of my head. People are going to get mad listening to this because one of them is really obvious. It's not Kissinger. That, that seems like who it is, but it's not Kissinger. Some other guy uh, that was involved in this kind of thinking as well. But I think almost the craziest part about this is that the guy who started the Hudson Institute is also the guy who started this whole framework of like how to survive nuclear fallout. Like... That right. whole like 1950s like scaremongering, like 1960s like Cold War scaremongering shit. Um, this guy was the pioneer of that. I mean, so that's to me really fascinating because that's like that shaped our reality tunnel and like our parents' generation. You know what I mean? Of course, yeah. They they were constantly doing nuclear blast drills. Yeah. In school. Uh, I found all these old handbooks of like nuclear fallout drills and readiness preparation it's like really really surreal i mean yeah it's surreal to live in a post 9 11 paradigm but i can't even imagine taking that threat and like you know multiplying it like a like a thousand um because that's what it was to live like in in the shadow of the cold war where you just thought that a nuke could be dropped on you at any point uh it's pretty terrifying i feel like in a weird sort of weird way it almost is kind of similar to pandemic because it's like a continuous 
mm-hmm. fear. Right. But at least the nuclear right. thing would be more like, oh my god, we're all gonna die in like one instant. The pandemic right. thing is more like, like we know we're not all. It's probably we're not gonna die, it's but the unknown. Yeah, but if another disease hits, you know, then like then we maybe will will die. It's like now we're now we're more primed for the idea that this can happen again and it's normal. Um, yeah, it's kind of disturbing, but. I mean, one of the interesting things about Hudson Institute that I just had no idea about, and this was, to me, connected a lot of dots, is that Khan, uh, the guy who, you know, was a pioneer in this sort of nuclear mm-hmm. fallout, you know, game theory shit, Herman Kahn, who started the Hudson Institute, he was also very um, involved in predicting uh, Japan's economic rise as an economic, you know, big global player. And uh, what he did was he sort of, you know, changed the Hudson Institute around from being focused on defense policy to also being focused on economics in the mid-60s. And uh, so by the mid-60s, Japan was, you know, starting to become uh, sort of an economic powerhouse. And uh, Herman Kahn actually had all the pe- these people from the Hudson Institute make all these connections to people in uh, the Japanese uh, parliament and government. So he was actually, like, the Hudson Institute was, like, connecting to the Japanese government and making all these friends with it, you know, with their, their think tank employees, like better than the U S government was at the time. And that's sort of interesting because that sort of gives them a leg up for, you know, putting out anti-China stuff, because if they're sort of in bed with Japan, you know, in the sixties, you know, what did that, what kind of, what kind of fruits came out of that relationship? Um, Cause you know, if people don't know already, Japan and China are like bitter enemies still. I mean, they they despise each other. Um, so, and also, apparently, do you think that was in part what the strategy was to try to isolate tri- China economically and focus more on, you know, like a collaborator with empire? I don't know if it was that. If it maybe just became useful later, because I don't know mm-hmm. if they're that ahead of the curve. You know, like it sounds mm-hmm. like Herman Kahn was very ahead of the curve. Apparently, he was. He also predicted f- hydraulic fracking. Um, as a means to of how America could get like economically advantage themselves in the global stage um, before it was even being done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that probably it was more just like, you know, it came, maybe it became useful later. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't have enough time to look into what Hudson Institute's doing with Japan now, but I do know that they gave an award to Abe, the, uh, I think the okay. previous Japanese prime minister who was very right wing. So yeah, very hawkish. Yeah. So that's very symbolic in and of itself. You know, that's basically a China, you know, fuck you to China kind of thing. What other kind of awards are issued and who have they been issued to? So they offer uh, two annual awards, uh, the Herman Kahn award and the global leadership award and past uh, award winners uh, include Nikki Haley, Paul mm. Ryan, Mike Great. Pence, Ronald awesome. Reagan, Henry Kissinger, Sweet. Rupert Murdoch, oh. Dick Cheney, Joseph Lieberman, oh. Benjamin Met- <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu, <laughs> David Betrayus, and Shinzo Abe. Awesome. Before Khan died, he probably was proud of himself for being such an influential force in the U.S. government over the long term. The Hudson Institute, the think tank that he founded, was advising congressional panels with detailed reports about nuclear weapons in the late 70s and actually had sort of an unofficial, quasi-official government branch that was prepared 
that would prepare reports for the Office of Technology Assessment of the U.S. Congress. Here's an example of a document that the Hudson Institute prepared for the U.S. Navy called Routes to Nuclear Weapons, Aspect of Purchase or Theft from April 1977. In the mid-1980s, during the Reagan era, they continued to do work for the Center for Naval Analysis. From the official paper's author, it says, CNA, the Center for Naval Analysis, is a federally funded research and development centers. It is a handful of FFRDCs sponsored by the Department of Defense and the only ones sponsored by the Navy. Others include RAND and Mitri corporations. Second, CNA's contract with the Department of the Navy ensures that CNA is not its intellectual captive. Since October 1983, the Center for Naval Analysis has been managed by the Hudson Institute. Hudson was founded in 1961 by the late Herman Kahn. As specified in Hudson Institute's contract with the Navy, studies will be selected for CNA based on importance to the Navy and on the requirements for an innovative and independent point of view. In September 1988, the Hudson Institute prepared a prepared a paper recommending battle strategies, naval battle strategies to be more specific, for the Center for Naval Analysis. It's called Airland Battle Doctrine by Douglas W. Skinner, Strike and Amphibious Warfare Research Department. It says logistical demands and consumptive requirements of future battles will be unprecedented. It is estimated that an armored division of M1 Abrams tanks will consume 450,000 gallons of fuel during each day of sustained combat in a typical NATO battle scenario. This is to be compared with the daily consumption of 350,000 gallons of fuel for General Patton's 3rd Army, consisting of 13 divisions, five of which were armored. So it's pretty interesting that they were basically this unofficial government organization that was writing these really important papers for the Navy regularly. Herman Kahn was such a big influence in culture that the Washington Post actually wrote an article about him when he passed away. From July 8, 1983, J.Y. Smith says, Herman Kahn dies, leading strategic theorist. Herman Kahn, 61, a leading strategic theorist who declared that nuclear conflict was both inevitable and survivable, died of a heart attack yesterday at his home in Chappaqua, New York. He made his reputation at the RAND Corp, the Defense Policy Center in California where he worked from 1948 to 1961. In doing so, he laid the foundation of the controversy that surrounds his name and that broadly delineates the debate on nuclear policy today. James R. Newman, an editor of Scientific American, wrote about On Thermonuclear War, it's a moral tract on mass murder, how to plan it, how to commit it, how to get away with it, and how to justify it. Mr. Kahn retained his views to the end of his life. In an interview with the Washington Post last year, see, they ran an interview of this guy, he said he had a little faith in the more recent doctrine of nuclear utilization target selection. Nuts. A scenario for a limited war, as he had in MAD, his underlying point was that a belief that war is impossible could lead to some policy error that would, in fact, make it happen. Wow, what, a, what an interesting sort of gaslighting thing to say. 
And also, how funny is it that I totally forgot to mention that he was the person who coined the term MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. He came up with a sequel to that term called Nuclear Utilization Target Selection. Nuts. And he used to get a little defensive, too, when he got a poor review of his second book on the same subject, Thinking the Unthinkable, in 1962. Washington Post says in this little obituary that the people who went on to criticize him, who refused to face the possibility of war, were acting like, quote, ancient kings who punished messengers who brought them bad news. In 1987, Mitch Daniels, a former aide to President Ronald Reagan, was appointed CEO of Hudson Institute. And it was at this time that Daniels sort of turned Hudson Institute into more of a government meshed, straight up neoconservative think tank of sorts. He recruited William Eldridge Autumn, former director of the National Security Agency, and he became Hudson's director of national security studies. Famous economist Alan Reynolds became director of economic research. Now, corporation Eli Lilly was one of the biggest funders of Hudson Institute at this time. And in 1990, Daniels, Mitch Daniels, the aide of Ronald Reagan, who became the CEO of Hudson, he left Hudson to become the vice president of corporate affairs at Eli Lilly, the company. Now, around the same time that Mitch Daniels took over as CEO in 1987, and they sort of plugged directly more into the Reagan national security apparatus, the Hudson Institute, looking back on their sort of footprint on what they did and how they influenced government, it's pretty obvious they had a lot to do with regime change, CIA regime change, that occurred specifically in Latin America in the late 1980s. On February 23rd, 1988, Hudson Institute put on a talk that you can find on C-SPAN called Latin America and the Reagan Administration. At the time, they hosted Assistant Secretary of State Elliot Abrams, who spoke about quote-unquote democracy in Latin America. Elliot Abrams, of course, would later become one of the pivotal Project for the New American Century members. And after this hard neocon pivot they did, they started to open up different offices in Paris, Brussels, Montreal, Tokyo, Korea, Singapore, Australia, and Latin America. I mean, that seems kind of like a little bit like NED, uh, you know, like sketchy shit. Like why, why do they need so many international branches, you know, in the yeah, 80s? Yeah, that's super bizarre. I mean, is, come there on, any, dude. is there any think tank that has a similar kind of reach? Because that is really an interesting... No, it point. is very bizarre to have that many branches and offices. I have never... That is interesting to me. I have not seen that when I've looked up these things. I know that Brookings and those kind of think tanks do but not seen one like this before that does. So that's, I mean, that is very suspicious, I think, especially when right, you- Right, yeah, like what, what kind of operations are they launching from these satellite offices? Yeah, with Reagan's like so national bizarre. security officials during the Reagan administration. That is you know? wild, wild stuff. From 1989, the Christian Science Monitor ran a puff piece about the Hudson Institute. It says, think tank in corn country- Move to Indiana provides down-to-earth view and welcome distance from power centers, Hudson Institute. 
Can a major American think tank find happiness in a mid-sized Midwestern city? Ask the Hudson Institute. Five years after moving here from Croton-on-Hudson, 45 miles upstream from New York City along the Hudson River, the professionals in this 28-year-old public policy research answer with a resounding yes. We strongly believe, adds, adds Mitch Daniels, now in his second year as president, that perspective is enhanced by distance. Distance from what? Washington, New York, and other centers of power. So it is a little curious why they moved to Indiana. And now Mike Pompeo uh, was a dist- is a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. His big job uh, after leaving the Trump administration was becoming this fellow at the Hudson Institute. Oh, so he wasn't involved, but now this is like his big yeah. exit? He doesn't oh, have wow. a huge position at the Hudson Institute. Scooter Libby has a much bigger position, but it's kind of funny, actually. This was some of the first proof that we had that Trump was going to leave because... You know, a lot of people were still afraid, and even I was a little bit, that Trump was still going to, like, somehow stay in in office and refuse to leave. Right. As crazy as it sounds. But Mike Pompeo actually announced that he was going to start working at the Hudson Institute on January 22nd. So (laughs) he, like, actually put the date in his, like, little (laughs) thing. So... It's just funny that Hudson Institute played a role. (laughs) Hudson Institute played a role of, in, like, you know, making everybody be like, "Yeah, Trump is leaving." Like this. Is just Wait, that's show. hilarious. Why didn't yeah. Why didn't Trump talk shit to him and be like, "You're a pussy for like not not backing me till the end." Like, because it, it like depends. it was just like some. I guess it went through the cracks. I don't know. That's <laughs> so yeah. good. You You mentioned Scooter Libby. Uh, remind our audience who he is again. Um. Well, he's he got convicted of a felony. Um. During a special investigation done of uh, who leaked Valerie Plame's name uh, in the media to Judith Miller. The whole thing is a very convoluted story. I Mm -hmm. I can't really go into it too deeply, but all you need to know about Scooter Libby really is, if you're a listener to to this podcast, is that he was uh, in Dick Cheney's cabinet, basically. He was a top-level Bush official. Um, He comes from the Project for the New American Century. He actually helped write, or he was one of the advisors of rebuilding America's defenses. So he wasn't just a signatory on the letters like some of the people were. He was like deeply involved in in their sort of what they wrote. Um, he is also really involved in sort of the bioweapons uh, circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really into fear mongering um, other people in the Bush government about the potential of an anthrax attack before an anthrax attack even happened. He apparently showed a videotape of Operation Dark Winter to Dick Cheney. Like um like in late September, just really weird shit. Um, and he was also uh he is also now the vice president of the Hudson Institute, and he makes wow. something like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year salary just through Hudson. Uh, yeah. For people who don't remember this, I mean, he was I think he was Cheney's direct advisor. Now, one thing I have to mention here is it wasn't just nuclear deterrence and you know nuclear weapons and fallout that the Hudson Institute and their people were influential in they were also influential with bioterror and in 2015 the Hudson Institute hosted a blue ribbon commission for the congress 2 days long on biological and chemical threat preparedness and leadership The conference 
was held starting on April 1st, 2015. Here were the people throughout this conference that spoke. Scooter Libby, Tom Ridge, former head of Homeland Security under George W. Bush, John Bolton, Thomas Inglesby, Mike Rogers, and last but not least, Robert Cadlick, Mr. Operation Dark Winter himself. He's the guy who actually stars in the Operation Dark Winter fake news broadcast where he says, well, it looks like it's going to be a really dark winter in America. Um, he was really one of those guys who was pushing really hard for the experimental anthrax vaccine. Whitney Webb has done some incredibly deep, detailed work on him. Highly recommend checking him out. Has some very odd connections to anthrax and was one of those people pushing for the smallpox mandatory vaccination program in case of a terrorist attack with smallpox. Very creepy shit, in my opinion. Circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the Hudson Institute discussion, um, is that the Hudson Institute is now very focused on China. And besides one other think tank, Abby, that we've already covered extensively on this podcast, the Committee on the Present Danger China, this think tank, Hudson, seems to be taking the lead uh, in terms of pushing hawkish views on China, but also pushing like right populism framing. Now, before I go over the pivot to China, I'm going to go back a little bit. In 1993, Hudson takes on Dan Quayle as their CEO and president for several years, actually, after he left the George H.W. Bush White House. Hudson was actually very ahead of the curve in terms of discussing the quote-unquote threat of China as well. If you go on C-SPAN, you can find a panel they did on August 30th, 1994, called Taiwan and China Evolving Relations. And Dan Quayle, speaking from his position as CEO of the Hudson Institute, talked about the quote-unquote evolving situation between China and Taiwan. In 1999, I found the second most obvious neocon appearance at the Hudson Institute. It was by Norman Podhortz discussing his book, Ex-Friends Falling Out with Allen Ginsberg. Only a year later, on December 4th, 2000, C-SPAN has an archive of a panel that Hudson did called the China threat to the U.S. economy. Authors talked about the growing global presence of China and how it affects the United States. Bill Gertz is the author of The China Threat, How the People's Republic Targets America. Sound familiar, Bill Gertz? Well, that's because Bill Gertz appears in our Schrodinger Super Patriot as someone who planted disinformation about anthrax and Saddam having chemical weapons. Well, specifically, Bin Laden having access to anthrax, which, of course, was completely untrue. Bill Gertz is also one of the people who seeded the narrative that the Chinese government made COVID-19 as some kind of bioweapon. So it's interesting that Bill Gertz, who's sort of in with the right populace, with the Epoch Timers, with the OANers, with the Breitbarters, who writes for the Washington Times, is here presenting his book, at a Hudson Institute event called The China Threat to the U.S. Economy. 
Now, after 9-11, the Hudson Institute sort of pivots towards terrorism and Iraq regime change. And they sort of explicitly announced this in some of their events and papers leading up to this. They actually put on a conference that was two days long called the Global Conference on Terrorism. And it's actually quite a disturbing conference, and it's so disturbing I'm just going to play you this clip. Uh, because at this conference, John Bolton, of course, spreads a bunch of lies about WMDs in Iraq. Mind you, this is November 1st, 2002, a Hudson Institute two-day conference, convention, whatever you want to call it, where John Bolton is spreading lies about Iraq's alleged chemical nuclear weapons months before the U.S. invasion. Iraq, despite U.N. sanctions, maintains an aggressive program to rebuild the infrastructure for its nuclear, chemical, biological, and missile programs. In each instance, Iraq's procurement agents are actively working to obtain both weapons-specific and dual-use materials and technologies critical to their rebuilding and expansion efforts, using front companies and whatever illicit means are at hand. We estimate that once Iraq acquires fissile material, whether from a foreign source or by securing the materials to build an indigenous fissile material capability, it could fabricate a nuclear weapon within one year. It has rebuilt its civilian chemical infrastructure and renewed production of chemical warfare agents, probably including mustard, sarin, and VX. It actively maintains all key aspects of its offensive biological weapons program. And in terms of its support for terrorism, we have established that Iraq has permitted al-Qaeda to operate within its territory. As the president said recently, the regime has long-standing and continuing ties to terrorist organizations, and there are al-Qaeda terrorists inside Iraq. And I think the president has made his position uh, on Iraq eminently clear, and in the next uh, weeks and months, we shall see what we shall see. The same conference, which was mostly just littered with Hudson Institute lackeys and so-called experts on bioterror, and terrorism. If you search anthrax in the C-SPAN transcript, especially on day two of the Global Conference of Terrorism that Hudson put on, it's pretty disgusting how much anthrax innuendo there was also about Saddam Hussein. And this was, of course, when the anthrax attacks had already occurred. So there's a lot of fear still in the air about that. Now, taking a slight detour, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about another personality who plays an important role in the Hudson Institute for quite a while. And that is Kenneth R. Weinstein. He had actually been with the Hudson Institute all the way back in 1991, but he got appointed to be CEO in June 2005. And it was eventually named the president and CEO in March 2011. He still serves as member of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, Wikipedia describes as a body for U.S. government civilian international media. Well, it's the U.S. state-funded media outlet that spreads pro-U.S. propaganda for regime change and geopolitical purposes. And it's interesting that Kenneth Weinstein, who became the president of Hudson in 2011, was part of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which 
runs Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, and Middle East Broadcasting. Weinstein also used to serve on the National Humanities Council, which is a prestigious position that was given by presidential appointment. And also he serves in the BBG by presidential appointment. But the National Humanities Council is the governing body of the National Endowment for the Humanities, which, as we've talked about on Media Roots before, is largely a State Department slash CIA conduit for American regime change purposes. Weinstein actually got a job in Trump's administration. He was appointed on the Advisory Committee for Trade Policy in September 2018. And Trump actually announced his intent to give Weinstein the U.S. ambassador to Japan position. And it's unclear, but it seems like he was actually rejected by the Senate. That for some reason he didn't qualify for the job. Now, Weinstein was in an interesting position at Hudson when they sort of got accused of running dirty work and propaganda against anti-GMO stuff or against organic food companies. Um, And apparently some of this money was being funneled to Hudson from Monsanto. The New York Times said it was revealed that Michael Fumento, who received funding from Monsanto for his 1999 book, Bioevolution, Company's spokesperson, Chris Horner, confirmed that it continues to fund the think tank. Talking about Hudson, it's our practice that if we're dealing with an organization like this, that any funds we're giving should be unrestricted. Hudson's CEO and president, Kenneth Weinstein, told Businessweek that he was uncertain if the payment should have been disclosed. That's a good question, period, he said. (laughs) The New York Times also accused Huntington and Gals Industries of using the Hudson Institute to enhance the company's argument for more nuclear-powered aircraft carriers at a cost of $11 billion each. The Times alleged that a former naval officer was paid by Hudson to publish an analysis calling for more funding. Hudson later acknowledged this and called it a mistake. Hudson Institute continued to run puff pieces for Eli Lilly. They even just would host events with Eli Lilly's CEO, just Hudson Institute events. Um, Erwin M. Steltzer hosted an event on November 4, 2003 with Sidney Terrell, the then president and CEO of Eli Lilly Corporation. In 2004, Hudson moves back to Washington, away from Indiana. We still don't know exactly why they moved to Indiana, Obviously, it wasn't to be away from the power structure in D.C. They must have had some specific purpose for doing it, but Eli Lilly actually gave them quite a bit of money to relocate. So perhaps Eli Lilly was the motive for them relocating. In 2004, Bill Gertz, the anthrax propagandist, the COVID-19 propagandist, the guy who uses anonymous Israeli scientist Mossad sources, for his stories in the Washington Times, hosted another little event at the Hudson Institute called Treachery, Arming Our Enemies. And Bill Gertz talked about his book, Treachery, How America's Friends and Foes Are Secretly Arming Our Enemies. You can find that clip on C-SPAN. Richard Pearl also appeared on a panel 
by the Hudson Institute on March 28, 2005, foreign policy divisions on the right. And of course, by now, I should have already made this much clearer if I didn't already, is that this think tank, Hudson, was heavily pushing for the Iraq war. Um, as you heard from that clip with John Bolton, they were, you know, right in the zone of some of the most hardcore pinackers pushing the Iraq war. So here you have Richard Pearl already in 2005 and the war is still going, you know, almost two years into the war at this point. That same year, actually, Hudson started to pivot towards China once again after a long break of focusing on terrorism and regime change in the Middle East. On June 11, 2005, Hudson Institute hosted a book event for a posthumous book event for an author who passed away right before his book was published, Constantine Manges, called China the Gathering Threat. A Hudson employee hosts an event by Hudson called The Neocon Reader, where he talks about the book, The Neocon Reader, published by Grove Press. The book was a collection of essays written by politicians and columnists who share a neoconservative perspective. January 18, 2005. July 5, 2006, Hudson was also ahead of the curve on the Cold War 2.0 posturing against Putin and Russia. They hosted an event called Another Look at Putin's Soul. This is a book published by Hudson Institute Press. Keep in mind, Hudson Institute had a big enough budget to actually publish not just papers, but actual books. Books, you say? Like Elliot Abrams' book for the Hudson Institute called Security and Sacrifice, Isolation, Intervention, and American Foreign Policy? Yes, just like that. Those kind of books. Douglas Murray, a neoconservative, gets featured at a Hudson Institute event called Neoconservatism, Why We Need It, from August 14th, 2006. And already, right out of the Bush administration, or at the tail end of the Bush administration, I should say, on May 7th, 2007, they actually hosted a guy named John Agresto, who talked about his book, Mugged by Reality. When I first saw this, I thought, oh, it's just more neoconservative promotion, of course, you know, this is only a year after they just did a talk called Neoconservatism, Why We Need It. Neoconservatism was the driving force behind the ideology that pushed for the Iraq war inside the Bush administration. So only a year later, here they're hosting a guy who has a book called Mug by Reality. Of course, I'm going to think it's the Irving Crystal phrase. But the subtitle of the book is The Liberation of Iraq and the Failure of of Good Intentions, published by Encounter Books. It's interesting because Encounter Books, I'm guessing, is related to Encounter Magazine, which Irving Crystal was the editor for back in the day. But what this talk and book is actually about is how the Iraq War was a blunder, how it was a mistake. So already Hudson Institute was ahead of the curve in that way as well, just like Robert Kagan was, to sort of pivot away from embracing the Iraq war and starting to say it was a mistake. That's smart optically. For neocons, I'll just say it, these people are obviously neocons. This is pretty much as neocon as it gets. 
Now, one thing I didn't maybe make clear enough is what differentiates Hudson Institute to some degree from other neocon think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute and Project for the New American Century, or even right now, what differentiates Hudson from the Committee on the Present Danger or Center for Security Policy is that Hudson actually does a lot more stuff. They produce a lot more content. They have a lot more resources. They seem much better funded. But one thing that differentiated them more in the past from a lot of these other think tanks was that they were very focused on military strategy and war strategy, much more so than other DC think tanks are, more so than Brookings, more so than even the Atlantic Council. The only other think tank I can think of that had this much focus on not just war and foreign policy, but war strategy, military strategy, was the Institute for the Study of War, the Kim Kagan think tank. And we're going to return actually to the Kagan family multiple times throughout this podcast. So hold on to your butts. Only a year after this, oops, we fucked up Iraq War quasi-apology Hudson Institute panel. On April 28, 2008, they hosted Douglas Fife to talk about his book, War and Decision, Inside the Pentagon at the Dawn of the War on Terror. Douglas Fife was a key architect to the Iraq War and a project for the New American Century member. In 2009, they do a panel on the threat, the growing threat of Russia and China. On January 13, 2010, Hudson Institute hosts John Bolton at the Reclaim American Liberty Conference. And at this conference, John Bolton spoke about the Obama administration's foreign policy, that he criticized it. And he kind of actually was calling Obama a globalist. He said that he saw President Obama as someone who preferred global governance instead of this unilateral approach that the neocons preferred. You see, in the Trump era, we've been sort of misconstrued that globalism Somehow the globalists are also neocons. That's actually not necessarily true. They believe in a unilateral approach. They want to take over the globe and globally control things, but they don't want to have global governance. But it's interesting, too, the wording of this conference that Hudson was a part of, Reclaim American Liberty, it sounds kind of Tea Party-ish, doesn't it? Like that Hudson is already getting involved maybe in the Tea Party. And were they? Yes, they were. Actually, around this time, they started to court people like Ted Cruz. On February 8, 2010, Michael Chertoff was hosted at the Hudson Institute to hype his new book, Homeland Security, Assessing the First Five Years. On October 15, 2010, Hudson Institute brought in Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister at the time, to talk about the diplomatic disputes between China and Japan. March 29, 2011, Donald Rumsfeld was hosted at the Hudson Institute to hype his book, Known and Unknown, a memoir, with a panel of Pentagon insiders and himself. In the early 2010s, Hudson had a political studies program, and it was to offer top undergraduates a fellowship in political theory and practice that will broaden and deepen their understanding of public policy and American political principles. 
The core of Hudson Institute Political Studies is a six-week summer program for undergraduates and recent graduates based in Washington, D.C. Hudson Political Studies, the six-week seminar, includes regular distinguished speakers such as Molly Hemingway, Senior Editor for The Federalist, William Galston, Senior Fellow, Brookings Institution, William Crystal, Editor-at-Large, The Weekly Standard, Senator Tom Cotton, United States Senate, Leon R. Cass, Senior Fellow, American Enterprise Institute, Walter Russell Mead, Distinguished Scholar, Hudson Institute, Kenneth Weinstein, President, Hudson Institute, Charles Vaughn, Chief of Staff, Thiel Capital, Peter Thiel. Hmm, interesting. Catherine Herridge, Chief Intelligence Correspondent, Fox News. Other trustees of the Hudson Institute that I kind of forgot to tell you before. Ralph Ellison, Alexander Haig, Arthur Herman, Amy Cass, Walter Russell Mead, Henry Kissinger, and Donald Kagan. Look who it is. Don Kagan, the Kagan patriarch. On November 4, 2020, after Hudson was well into their right populist rebranding phase, they actually interviewed Robert Kagan, Donald Kagan's son, who, in case you didn't realize or know this, if you're a new listener to this podcast, I made a documentary film series on the Kagan family in the Project of the New American Century Neoconservatives. You might want to check that out if you haven't already. Hudson Institute hosted Robert Kagan multiple times. They also hosted Dick Cheney. They also host Marco Rubio, who's also a neocon. Of course, Rumsfeld, who I already mentioned. Tom Ridge, Douglas Fyth, Norman Podhoritz. These are all Project for the New American Century neocons. Richard Pearl, John Bolton. I mean, this is as PNAC as it gets. And I should stress here that this is largely a right-wing think tank. This is not a neoliberal think tank. This is not a liberal interventionist or, you know, globalist, realist foreign policy think tank. This is a classic neocon, PNAC, crazy off-the-rails think tank. So when we've been hearing this narrative for the last four years, even from people in anti-imperialism that Trump is or that Trumpism represents some kind of going against the neocons or going against uh, foreign interventions, um, this, what I'm about to tell you, just really flies in the face of that because Hudson was actually one of the only main D.C. think tanks that when Trump got in office was actually pro-Trump. They took a pro-Trump position. Now, that was highly unusual to do. It is true that most of the traditional think tanks and most of the quote-unquote regular neocons like Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol and their ilk turned away from Trump and Trumpism. But there was basically a split, and there had been a neocon split even before. And I would say Hudson represented the neocon split that was still pushing for Iranian regime change during the Bush era, during the uh, Obama era, a lot of other neocons had sort of rebranded and stopped talking about that. But Hudson continued to talk about it. Hudson, in a way, was more like the FDD. But unlike the FDD, Hudson had a really big amount of influence because the Trump administration actually chose Hudson as a forum to 
announce and launch several of their main positions. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. In 2016, when Trump got in, Hudson was still mostly just focused on Iraq. But they did have, you know, they did have a few little dribblings here and there that they were still focused on China. They had a talk in 2016 called Chinese Military Technology about how China was stealing technology or was more advanced than ours or whatever bullshit they were trying to spin. And then in August 9, 2016, they did another conference on the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship. And they say, panelists examine the regional security challenges facing Taiwan and China's military incursions. Now, 2017 seemed to mostly focus on ISIS, Islam, Islamic terror. And this is when it sort of became much more obvious that they were mixing right populism and sort of the Obama-era neoliberal hawk spook stuff together, which is sort of actually unusual. You didn't really see much of that happening. You know, we're sort of led to believe that there's completely different camps um, between those two, you know, camps. But here's what's crazy. So on October 30th, 2017, this is a conference that took place that, you know, you wouldn't really hear about now because things seem so polarized. But in 2017, when Trump was in office, they held a conference called the Violent Extremism Conference, hosted by the Hudson Institute. It was a multi-day conference. And here are who the speakers were at this conference. And I think this is very, very key. Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, two main Obama CIA neo-lib guys, neo-lib hawk guys, Tom Cotton, hardcore neocon, right-wing neocon, and Steve Bannon, who is supposed to be sort of the Zengali of right-wing populism. Now, if Steve Bannon was so anti-globalist, what was he doing there? Was he there to throw sand in the eye of uh, Leon Panetta and David Petraeus and even Tom Cotton? No. He was there trying to create this bridge between the ultra-hawks in D.C. and right populism, this quasi-right populism. You can't just completely exclude and burn every bridge in D.C. See, Bannon's not a total idiot, you know? Trump, Trumpism was never about going against the establishment of Washington, D.C. There already is a group and a sect of Washington, D.C. that's on the same page as Trumpism, what it represented with foreign policy. But you didn't really have any talk about China in 2017. Even in 2018, Hudson was mostly just anti-Iran and anti-Assad. Their majority of their talks were about Iran Syria and military strategy and budget in 2019. But you also started to see around 2018 a bromance starting between anti-China media like the Epoch Times and the Hudson Institute specifically. You started to see Steve Bannon's podcast bringing on tons of Hudson Institute officials. Now this is long before I was knowledgeable about what the Epoch Times was and I studied the sort of network's of anti-China think tanks and media inside the United States. But in 2018 is when the major pivot happens at Hudson. And it happened simultaneously with the Trump administration. And Hudson was the vessel in which the Trump administration used to launch this major pivot. 
Even though Peter Navarro appeared at Hudson to talk about the U.S.-China trade relationship in 2018, it wasn't until Mike Pence appeared at Hudson and gave a major speech and accused China of interfering in the 2018 midterm elections that the rhetoric against China really started to ramp up in a serious way. The Trump administration chose Hudson in which to announce this policy. Now, in 2019, we saw a major escalation at the Hudson Institute of China-focused talks, papers, panels, you name it. In fact, if you look at all of their events, the majority of them in late 2019 and 2020 are about China. In fact, they're almost all about China. November 26th, 2019, discussion on China's global influence. December 18th, 2019, treatment of Uyghurs in China. February 7th, 2020, former officials on U.S.-Japan relations. December 13th, 2019, U.S. naval surveillance. U.S. Navy's ability to track and target China's growing naval presence in the West Pacific. February 21st, 2020, discussion on U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. How to address China's efforts to get other countries to be dependent on them. February 20th, 2020, artificial intelligence technology in competition with China. And even though there's several other events about China here, I'm just going to mention the most pivotal second one after Mike Pence was that FBI Director Christopher Wray in July 12th, 2020, discussed China's influence in the U.S. And he basically said that China is occupying almost all the FBI's espionage investigations right now. And he made it sound like China is the basically the biggest threat facing the United States and that the FBI is now involved in trying to combat all these cyber terrorism and hacking operations that China's trying to do. Now, I know some of this is rather long-winded, but trust me, this is all going to tie together. What I've just told you is that Hudson Institute was unique during the Trump era and that they had a lot of influence over the D.C. think tank scene, over the military-industrial complex, over foreign policy, and as you'll see in a little bit, even over domestic policy. But the Hudson Institute was probably the most mainstream, high-budget think tank that was fixated on confronting China during the Trump era. That is a fact. And you could see that very clearly if you look back at what they've been doing and what they've been spending their time and resources on for the past few years. But that's not, to me, one of the most dangerous aspects of this think tank, actually. It's not just the China stuff and the escalation into a new Cold War with China that they've been trying to aggravate. To me, it's actually more dangerous that this think tank has actually managed to creep into not just alternative media, quote-unquote anti-establishment, anti-MSM alt-media circles, like Zero Hedge and places like that. They've actually managed to put their tentacles even in the anti-imperialist left, believe it or not. And the way that they've managed to do this is actually very simple. But the way that Hudson Institute has managed to pull this off was first with a podcast they launched in 2019, but also with a single individual, believe it or not, a young up-and-coming neocon. 
They don't just do this with their think tank writings and the personalities that are at their think tank. They actually do it through a really important podcast that they were running for the last few years called the Realignment Podcast. And this podcast is uh, co-hosted by Sagar Anjedi and a guy named uh, Marshall Isakoff. What's, what's kind of unique about this podcast is it sort of has people from the intellectual dark web, people from sort of the post-left sort of edgelord scene, um, and just straight up hardcore neocons like Pinackers and Trump officials like Mike Pompeo. So let me just give you a little lineup of who has been on the Realignment podcast. Yeah. Uh, and mind you, this is the official Hudson Institute podcast up until June 2020. Then they mm -hmm. rebranded to what is called Lincoln Network. Uh, Hudson podcast, The Realignment, Hudson Institute's podcast, The Realignment, switched to the branding of Lincoln Network. It was no longer hosted on Hudson since June 2020. But all the episodes before that for like the previous three years were Hudson Institute produced. I'm assuming Sagar Jetty and his co-host got paid by Hudson to do this podcast. It was an official Hudson job. Um, previous guests include IDW, Intellectual Dark Web, Peter Thiel Plant, um, and Zionist Eric Weinstein, um, who is a returning favorite to the Realignment podcast. Mm -hmm. It also includes rebranded neocon Iraq war apologist Andrew Sullivan, uh, who's one of the big Substack Incredible. proponents uh, right now. Stealth neocon lefty China hawk Matt Stoller is a regular on the Realignment. Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein's mm. brother, um, who is mm -hmm. technically probably the most credible IDW figure, but is you know very suspicious that his brothers work for Peter Thiel. And it is sus. I'm sorry if you're in denial about that. Mm -hmm. Matthew Iglesias, uh, who's kind of a loser neoliberal, is a guest on Realignment. Zaid Jelani, who you know was the mm. neocon watcher who used to do good reporting on Robert Kagan, who now sort of went through getting you know his own mug by, by reality, reality, baby. Mug by reality transformed <laughs> by BLM. Marco Rubio, who was actually their mm. first guest when they went independent, they claimed. I actually listened to the episode from June 2020 where they're like, we're going independent. Uh, we're now an independent podcast. And they're like, but like, we're all, we're doing it through the Lincoln Network. And it's like, well, is it independent or is it through the Lincoln Network? Because when you, you look at the Lincoln Network, it looks like it's just a cutout for Hudson. <laughs> like, it right. looks, it look, all the people who are associated with it seem like they're also associated or affiliated, you know, with Hudson somehow. And it's and when you look at Lincoln, you're like, oh, it's like a sort of right populist fighting big tech think tank, Lincoln Network. Do you think that they rebranded because they wanted to appear that they were independent from Hudson, obviously? And and if so, why? Because they were doing it for so long. Maybe they just, yeah, maybe they did want to rebrand just to get yeah. out of that affiliation. Yeah, so Marco Rubio was on, mm -hmm. a, you know, their first episode uh, when they moved away from Hudson. Um, but my my feeling on it is that it's just rebranded, like without actually changing hands. Like I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if it still somehow is Hudson, um, but it's just not on Hudson's website anymore. And Hudson no longer has a podcast on their website, like a different one than the realignment. They just have the old episodes up on there. Can I jump in here and just yeah. say really quickly who funds the Hudson Institute? Because I think this is an interesting angle. Uh, heavily funded by the Koch brothers, as we know, extreme libertarian oil oligarchs. Uh, and then when you look at corporate funding 
aside from people like the Koch brothers, it's just a myriad of uh, weapons contractors, oil companies, and like food conglomerates, interestingly enough, like Cargill, um, ConAgra, DuPont, ExxonMobil, Fannie Mae, General Electric, Heinz, Ketchup Dynasty, remember John Kerry's wife, IBM, McDonald's, Microsoft, Monsanto, the Agricultural Chemical Association, PayPal, interestingly enough, PayPal, Procter & Gamble, um, and many, many more. So pretty interesting. You have to like wonder what kind of influence are these donors having? Well, what kind of policy prescriptions are they putting out? What kind of policy prescriptions is Hudson putting out? Well, they recently? put out stuff about fentanyl um, mm -hmm. getting into our streets. They put out stuff about China flooding our streets with fentanyl. So my thinking <laughs> on that was that, Hilarious. well, maybe, you know, this pharmaceutical company that's funding them, uh, you know, doesn't want press about how they make deadly opiates that kill people, you know, that are prescribed legally. So I don't know. I mean, that's just speculation. But I think what's sort of bizarre to me is they don't seem to have a huge amount of defense contractor funding. And that right. makes it a little bit different than some of these other hawkish think tanks. But what's odd is they were, they started basically as a military strategy foreign policy think tank. So I don't know how much crossover there is with their foreign policy and some of these other neocon foreign policy think tanks. But my sense is that they are actually very fixated on regime change in China, throwing dirt in China's eye, trying to undermine China economically, trying to pull all these different issues and all these threads to make everything seem like some kind of political tug of war and information war with China. You know, whether that's banning TikTok to, mm -hmm. what do you call it, 5G. And, you know, not, not a surprise, uh, one of their frequent guests on the realignment is General Robert Spaulding. Um, and I don't know if people who follow me on Twitter may have seen me arguing with Robert Spaulding before. He would respond to pretty much every tweet I would send him, which was pretty fun for a while until he blocked me. But basically, Robert Spaulding uh, is kind of a soft QAnoner who talks, you know, he does talks at the Hudson Institute. Uh, he is a Hudson Institute employee. And Abby, uh, he has a 5G uh, company of his own that puts up 5G towers and he has his own ISP oh, wow. to it. And guess what it's called? Hit the nail on the head. Guess what, what? it's called? What? Q Networks. Wow. And uh, one day on Twitter, I said, hey, Robert, why did you just retweet the Q oath on Twitter? And then he deleted the tweet within a couple hours and pretended to all his followers that he didn't know what he was retweeting. Oh, that was that guy. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I that mean, so this is really another strange. actual U.S. military ge former general Q and honor. I mean, it's pretty fucking psychotic, dude. Um, so, Robbie, wrap this up for our audience by explaining why this is so problematic, because there are this is a, you know, think tanks are a dime a dozen in D.C. And as you just said, a lot of the other think tanks like CNAS, CSIS, I mean, these are heavily funded by weapons contractors specifically to push war. So what is it about the Hudson Institute that is so dangerous right now? And, you know, why should we be focusing on it really under Biden? Well, I'll say let's just go back to what we talked about in the 80s. Um, what, what did it seem like Hudson was doing in the 80s, opening up all these little branches in Latin America? What was what was a Reagan administration doing in Latin America in the 80s? Murdering uh, a lot of people. The Cold War. Oh yeah, <laughs> killing a lot of people and doing sketchy shit with the CIA, sponsoring you know terrible death squads. 
So let's just go back to that. Let's maybe imagine that they're still doing stuff like that now. Now, what would they be doing? Well, I don't know. Maybe they're somehow connected to intelligence in some bizarre way. I don't, I don't know. So I don't know how many, if you look at their actual funding, the pie charts, it's mostly opaque, uh, largely unknown foundations that are funding them. And sometimes that stuff comes from intelligence. It's laundered or sort of chained hands. You don't know where the money's really coming from. So just because they're not funded by defense contractors, I would say don't, don't see that as a reason not to be worried about it. I mean, they are funded by some defense companies, mm-hmm. just not a huge amount of their, you know, compared to like uh, Kim Kagan's Institute for the Study of War, which is like almost all defense companies that fund it. But I guess, I guess what is so dangerous about this notion of adopting and co-opting the right populist thought and this Trumpism and folding it into the Hudson Institute? So I think it's it's because, you know, the idea of populism, the idea of right populism, a lot of the the things that these so-called right populists talk about are things that, you know, Bernie Sanders has also talked about. Um, in a general sense, uh, you know, there's some things that seem like uh, there are issues that these people push that are good, like putting the tech company's feet to the fire, being opposed to endless wars. Trump, you know, tweeted, end the endless wars, you know. That's some, somehow some kind of right populist belief. So I think that what's very interesting is when you're able to sort of capture and sort of co-opt a movement in a rhetorical frame like that, then the medicine goes down easier in terms of actually delivering propaganda. That's establishment propaganda, that's that's maybe even military propaganda that's coming from intelligence agencies or different corporations. It makes you, it sort of passes your bullshit detector easier because it's almost telling you things you want to hear. And for example, one of the best examples of this is I think Cigar on Jetty, uh, who is the co-host of the Realignment podcast, Hudson's official podcast. He is the co-host of The Hill Rising, um, mm-hmm. which is an attempt, I believe, it is an attempt by the Hudson Institute to push neocon, regime change, and elitist conservative propaganda under the guise of populism and anti-establishment. Now, you're sort of wondering, well, how does that work? Well, it works because, like I said, they tell you some things you want to hear, but then they sort of insert, you know, things from think tanks. Like, Cigar and Jetty doesn't really care about China. Where is he getting all those China talking points from? Every time he talks about it, it's straight from the Hudson Institute. It's very clearly lines up with it. It is, I think, just very dangerous to have any think tank or, any, you know, even just Trump, an entity like Trump posing as this anti-establishment figure who's a vehicle for neocons, in the military-industrial complex. But, Robbie, what would you say to people who say crystal ball is the counterweight to that and, you know, who cares? I mean, why shouldn't we work with right populists who want to end the wars and, you know, want to challenge big tech and stuff like that? Um, I would say if you, you know, I have a bridge to sell you. Like, if you think, if you really <laughs> think that these people, that a Hudson Institute employee who works at a think tank that, whose vice president is Scooter Libby, if you really believe that you want to work with that guy to help stop wars, you're completely fucking delusional. I mean, you would have to just believe in total fairy tales to think that that situation would would come out. Now, it's one thing it, that's completely different from saying, hey, why don't we work with a libertarian who's anti-war and create some kind of 
Right. Sort of union on stopping war with uh, Scott Horton or people from antiwar.org, like Dave Ducamp, who's like a libertarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it never about that? It's always about like Jack Posobiec, who's like a Roger Stone right. plant. It's always about Cigar on Jetty, who's a Hudson Institute fucking plant. It's always Why? about Why? Why do you fucking... think that is? Because it's a fucking op. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's an op. It is an op. There's because this shit's really, uh, it's popular. It's now popular to say war is bad. It's now that is the norm. So if you can feed into that mindset while still delivering propaganda and getting people indoctrinated into hating China, for example, and stopping worrying about what's happening in our country, or even right. I mean, I, I would respect Cigar and Jetty so much more if he was an actual anti-war libertarian, like in the same vein as yeah. Ron. Ron Paul or some of these other people that you just mentioned, like Scott Horton. Instead, he was openly supporting Donald Trump. And it's just, it's insulting. And what guests did I tell you he had on his podcast? I mean, let's just go over some of the other ones I didn't mention. He had on Robert Spaulding multiple times, the Q Network's crazy general. He had on Mike Pompeo on his podcast. Cigar on Jetty had on Peter Navarro, the Trump official who wore the Q pin. Um, Cigar on Jetty had on PNAC neocon Douglas Fife on his podcast. Cigar on Jetty had on Peter Thiel-funded neocon dork J.D. Vance on his fucking podcast. He also had on neocon psycho Tom Cotton. I mean, and he has on the China Hawk, you know, fake populist guy Josh Howley. Is there all the same people who all appear to be part of some kind of op of some kind or like coordinated network of people who are getting the same talking points? And also funnel the energy that is true populism into this weird controlled operation and controlled uh you know, opposition type stuff. And it's really, Absolutely. really strange. And look how many different little fingers, you know, look how many different pies they put their fingers in. Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, Matt Stoller is considered like a Bernie leftist guy. I mean, this is really interesting that they're hitting all these different buttons. There's got to be something else happening here. You know, and we've already talked about how Barry Weiss and the intellectual dark web seems to be, you know, some kind of coordinated op of some kind as well. This, to me, is just even more obvious. This is a think tank. You know, any time a think tank gets involved that comes from, like, Reagan intelligence officials, I mean, you just have to wonder, like, what in the fuck are they doing with this shit? Right, Are they yeah. the good These guys? people aren't stupid. Yeah, no, we're, they're yeah. the baddies. And so the baddies. your original question is, what about Crystal Ball? I don't really know much about Crystal Ball personally. I know a lot of people like her. I mean, she was involved in some sketchy fundraising stuff before she even got the Hill. I don't know much about her politics. I don't trust her because I don't really just know anything about her. So to say that she's some kind of counterbalance to Cigar, I, it doesn't make sense to me because like I know what Cigar, where he comes from. I know where he gets his talking points from. I just don't know where she's from. It's kind of almost like Hannity Combs, except Cigar and Jenny's Hannity and she's Combs. Like I didn't know what Combs was about. He barely chimed in. He barely had anything to say. Um, he barely rebutted Hannity's talking points in an effective way. So that's kind of the same vibe I get with this. And I just don't, And I, but I think what makes people more susceptible to believing in this is Cigar and Jetty knows how to say things that sound good to even people on the left sometimes. So let me take you down a little Cigar and Jetty rabbit hole. We mostly talked about how he's a Hudson media fellow and how Hudson liked him enough to Choose him as the host for their official podcast, The Realignment. Cigar on Jetty went to George Washington University 
for his bachelor's from 2010 to 2014. He got a security studies master's degree from Georgetown University from 2015 to 2018. And if you're wondering where I got this information from, it's from his LinkedIn page. Now, what I find most interesting is next in Sagur's academic career is he joins IDC Herzlia, the Interdisciplinary Center Herzlia, a private research college in Herzlia, Israel. It's located in the city of Herzlia in the Tel Aviv district. Now, what is the Interdisciplinary Center Herzlia? Why is this notable on Sagar's resume that he attended some kind of extra college in Israel? Well, he actually studied counterterrorism at this private school in Israel. What is this private school in Israel? What, what's it all about? Well, it's actually the only school of its kind in Israel that offers you academic credits for IDF service. So say, let's say if you're an American and you want to go to school at IDC Herzliya, you can actually volunteer for the IDF and trade in your IDF time served for academic credits at this university. The school's campus is on a former Israeli Air Force base that was a main that was a main fighter base during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. And then it became an official military Israeli school for anti-aircraft warfare until 1992. Now you may take a glance at this school and see that it doesn't look super suspicious, that it doesn't really seem like it's connected to the Israeli government, even if it shares the campus of a former Israeli Air Force base. Well, Gal Gadot is actually an alumni from the school, so you know maybe it's maybe it's pretty above board. Maybe it's not really that uh, unusual. Well, let me tell you about some of the faculty and some of the people involved at this school. Alan Dershowitz is one of the notable faculty members of this school. On the board of directors includes Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, Sylvan Shalom, the former vice prime minister of Israel, Miriam Adelson, the wife of billionaire philanthropist Sheldon Adelson, Yishai Beer, who was a former general in the IDF, and the most notable name for their international advisory board is, of course, the master spook, Iraq war propaganda, psychopath, neocon himself, R. James Woolsey. So why is it suspicious that Sagar and Jetty went to an Israeli school to learn counterterrorism that has James Woolsey on its advisory board, that has Ehud Barak and Miriam Adelson on its board of directors? What's suspicious about that? I don't know. You tell me. Um, it seems uh, like it's a school that probably taught you how to do Hasbro, you know, that may be one thing that it taught. Well, if you look at their actual pamphlet for their brochure on their government program, which includes the counterterrorism studies and the degree that Sagar got from this school, you can see that some of their alumni from this program include several APAC employees, several U.S. government employees, and that the school also hosts the International Institute for Counterterrorism Conference, and it's up to its 16th conference, which they hosted Benjamin Netanyahu. 
in one of their previous conferences. The counterterrorism program that Sagar learned under was chaired by Professor Boaz Gonor, and its specialization includes in the class syllabus former and informal terrorist actors, insurgencies in civil war, psychological aspects of terrorism, radical Islamic ideologies, Hezbollah, a hybrid terrorist organization, online terrorism, terrorism and prof, terrorism and profiling, terrorism fundraising, post modern terrorism, global migration, introduction to homeland security, counterterrorism issues and challenges for homeland security, counterterrorism strategy and the terrorism threat, national security strategy and deterrence, intelligence in the new era, dilemmas in counterterrorism decision making. You can also learn Iranian diplomatic and security studies, Jerusalem and regional politics, Egypt, politics, society, and terror from vision to reality, speaking Arabic for diplomatic purposes. So this school is basically some kind of spook, Mossad, CIA, neocon school of some kind, as you can see. But Sagar presents himself now as some kind of Trumper, some kind of right populist. And what did Sagar do right out of school? What did he write in 2015, right after he got his bachelor's degree? Well, the first place that Sagar worked right out of college is the Institute for the Study of War, the Kim Kagan, Kagan Family Think Tank, which is chaired by Bill Kristol, David Betraeus, and General Jack Keane. Sagar wrote four papers for the Institute for the Study of War in 2015, one called Taliban Northern Offensive Expands from October 1st, 2015. The second one is Militant Attack and Support Zones in Afghanistan from October 6, 2015. From September 18th, 2015, Sagar wrote about the on-the-ground developments in Afghanistan. In September 29th, 2015, Sagar wrote for the Institute for the Study of War, developments on the ground in Afghanistan following the fall of Kunduz to the Taliban and increases ISIS and Al-Qaeda activity. Sagar Anjedi also interviewed Donald Trump four separate times, as he so proudly displays on his LinkedIn page. And now his main gig is, of course, being the host of The Hill Rising, alongside of Crystal Ball. You know, not only is Sagar and Jetty a Trump guy working for the Hudson Institute, but a Trump guy owns the Hill in general. So what is the intent of putting out a show like this? And who is it geared toward? Because I know a lot of people who watch Rising every day and they love Crystal Ball. But my question to you is, who is this show geared toward? Is it geared toward people who are watching Crystal Ball, watching the show for Crystal Ball and then absorbing Sagar and Jetty's talking points? Or is the show geared to Sagar and Jetty's audience? And are they willing to take the risk that those people will absorb Crystal Ball's talking points? And I would go out on a limb to say it's the former. Well, yeah, you don't even have to go on a limb. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's obvious. Like, it's even more so than Hannity and Combs because there were Democrats who would watch Hannity and Combs and, uh, you know, would sort of like... Uh, you know, root for Combs, and they would feel bad by the end of it because he would all like he would just get destroyed. You know, every time like a pathetic doormat. Um, so I almost feel like it's worse than that because like Hannity was never smart enough 
if you're a Democrat to like sway you to like believing in like neocon propaganda, you know, unless you're really dumb, Cigar and Jetty can absolutely do that exact thing. Even if you're there to watch Crystal Ball. So that's what's to me really fascinating about how, you know, that program works. And what about the program itself? Where does it actually come from? Well, as you mentioned, Abby, already, The Hill is an outlet that is owned by a right-wing Trump person, essentially. Or it was sort of a Trumpism slanted outlet, sort of like the Washington Times. Now, why did I mention the Washington Times again? Well, John Solomon, uh, who was the executive editor of the Washington Times, was hired by The Hill in 2017. Now, who is John Solomon? Well, he's a very popular Fox News pundit from over the years. The Hill hired John Solomon in 2017, and Solomon also had a very close relationship, personal relationship with Fox News's Sean Hannity and his TV show Hannity, where John Solomon appeared on more than a dozen times over a span of three months. But in 2018, The Hill announced that someone by the name of Crystal Ball and Jamal Simmons were going to be the presenters of a new slate of original programming to be produced by John Solomon, this right-wing pundit. Ball was slated as a progressive co-host on a morning show with a conservative co-host. Well, at first, even though the show Rising was originally presented as Jamal Simmons and Crystal Ball, it quickly changed, and I'm guessing because of the involvement of John Solomon, to being a show that was co-hosted by a spook, a CIA agent named Buck Sexton. Another Trumper guy. Let me go back to Crystal Ball for a little bit. Crystal Ball was actually a former government contractor for the CGI group, which does contracts for the U.S. government. She tried to run congressional campaign in 2010 and lost. During her run for office, she was smeared for some lurid pictures, I guess, taken at a bar between her and her husband. I don't really know the details about that. It's not important. What's more important is that during her campaign, she also got accused of running what McClatchy DC called a scam pack. I don't really know much about the pack itself. She did somehow come out over the scandal eventually, even though it was never really resolved. But she did pay herself over $250,000 salary out of this pack when she was running for Congress. So it does seem very sketchy. But other than that, her actual political background is not very clear. But she did try to run for office. She did sort of try to present herself as a generic progressive. But to me, what's more interesting is her original co-host on Rising, which was produced by and created by neocon right-wing Fox News pundit and Washington Times editor-in-chief John Solomon, was former CIA agent Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton served in Iraq and then Afghanistan in counterterrorism. He then worked for the NYPD's intelligence division for eight years. Now, you can actually find on YouTube, even though the Hill Rising's YouTube channel or the Hill's YouTube channel has mostly taken them down off the playlists, you can find plenty of old episodes with Crystal Ball on the original episodes of Rising, co-hosted with Buck Sexton. And it seems as though Buck Sexton is kind of the one running the show. And it seems as though most of the guests that they actually brought on the show were just like generic, you know, DC insider people. 
uh, when Rising first started, they actually brought on John Solomon to talk about how great his interview with Trump is. And it was just like a groveling, bootleaking interview with Trump. Uh, Rudy Giuliani appears on Buck Sexton and Crystal's version of Rising twice for them to just totally softball interview him the whole time um, in these kind of completely non-adversarial appearances. Now, what's interesting to me is back then, Crystal's role in the show seemed way more scripted. It definitely seemed like a different show. So what's important to notice here is they originally launched Rising with Crystal Ball and a spook. Now, they sort of rebranded Rising. It changed into a completely different style of show. Even though it was originally marketed as this like Hannity versus Combs dynamic, uh, it never really was that as far as I can tell while watching it. Even though it kind of tries to be that at times, it's not really convincing. But when Cigar comes into the picture, when Buck Sexton gets replaced with Cigar in 2019, The Hill Rising, the show, essentially becomes the Hudson Institute's realignment podcast, but on TV, with Crystal Ball as Cigar's co-host instead of Marshall Isakoff. It drastically changes its tone and focus to be sort of this realignment, populism between the left and right working together kind of thing. But somehow, somehow... The Hill Rising with Cigar on Jetty managed to sell the idea that it was a populist show and that it was going to be sort of a positive thing to create a forum for the left and the right to be working together. That's how it was originally proposed. That's how it sort of was portrayed. And a lot of people bought into it and still buy into it. But the reason I've told you all this stuff today is because on some level, it's pretty obvious if you looked at the Hudson Institute's trajectory and you look just at Cigar's trajectory that he's not some kind of populist, anti-establishment person. That in only six years since graduating from college and writing all this stuff for the Institute for the Study of War, which is as neocon as it gets, that he's somehow now some kind of right populist while still working as a media fellow for Hudson in the same building as General Robert Spaulding and Scooter Libby. I mean, you really have to let all that sink in to think that this show, Rising, is somehow delivering some kind of effectively anti-establishment message and not some kind of stealth neocon message underneath it all, coming from a neocon think tank. Cigar on Jetty and Crystal Ball also co-authored a book called The Populist Guide to 2020, A New Right and New Left Are Rising. And unfortunately, Nina Turner of the Bernie Sanders campaign ended up writing a forward to this book along with, who wrote another forward, they didn't do it together, side-by-side -side forwards, with Tucker Carlson. So this book was actually really trying to pitch that idea. And, you know, I don't know who was largely responsible for writing it. I don't know how much Crystal wrote versus what Cigar wrote, but I can tell you that Crystal does not seem to be plugged into getting her talking points from a think tank. She seems to be just mostly sort of going off the cuff, you know, she does seem to be progressive in certain areas, but I personally don't know much about her. I don't trust her. So, but this whole concept of trusting this program and trusting that this is some kind of left-right populist alliance, I think is rather, rather naive in light of what I've just gone over in this entire podcast. And most recently, Cigar on Jetty is promoting neocon Josh Rogan and his anti-China diatribes. 
I really feel like there's a lot of weird, bad faith, stealth right wing people on the online, Abby, just in social <laughs> media in general, who like pretend that they're lefties and they're like, oh, yeah. I love the Hill. What's your problem with it? You don't like, what are you like a purity test person? It's like, dude, you're fucking like secret MAGA fucker, aren't you? Like, I, I, it's not like, it's just weird how many of these people are like bad faith people. Like, I don't know. So, I, I think a lot of that's fake. <laughs> well, definitely the people who are still defending Tulsi Gabbard at this point. It's like, dude, like you have, I mean, there's zero legs to stand on at this point. Like you would think after Project Veritas, you'd be dead in the water. But yeah, I mean, they still they still come out there and pose LARP as leftists. And it is confusing because it's just a sea of idiocy out there. And it's, you know, it's easy to get bogged down. But let's wrap because this is a fucking doozy. It's not just about Cigar or the Hill, because that's not having that, you know, it's having some impact on the dialogue, um, but not, like, it's not the whole picture. I think the Hudson Institute and the talking points they're putting out through other various networks on the right, you know, mostly on the right and, like, through Fox News, you know, Glenn Greenwald retweets quite a few people from Hudson, um, you know, on the regular pretty much, uh, that's where it has the most influence. And I think that's where we really need to worry. And the fact that Hudson seems smart enough to be tapped into all these different little pockets, Eric Weinstein, the intellectual dark web, Matt Stoller, um, and that they were directly connected to the national security state seemingly during the Reagan era. Um, you can't forget that. And that they're giving awards to Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, hosting Mike Pompeo uh, you know, during the Trump administration. I don't remember the Trump administration going to other think tanks and doing that kind of stuff. So they were very cozy with the last administration. That gives that makes them a pretty powerful player in this whole scene overall. So I just think people need to look to them. If you're wondering where a lot of the anti-China neocon propaganda comes from, look at the Hudson Institute. Pretty fascinating stuff, and it's interesting that we haven't really heard much about the Hudson Institute considering how far-reaching their influence has been for decades, you know? And, like, the rebrand, I think, is very, very fascinating because it shows you the trajectory. Yeah, it shows you... And just the rebrand in terms of, like, adopting this this paradigm of fake right populism because they see that that's the future and they want to siphon the energy that they see happening right now. And and that's where a lot of these other more old-school think tanks are are kind of losing the plot. Um, they're not on the tip of the right populism stuff. And so that's what makes Hudson particularly savvy, I think. And it's going to be interesting that's to see exactly where it goes. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the main takeaway from all this, I think. And I don't think I drove that home uh, strongly enough is that they really have, they're really on the cutting edge of knowing how to tap into that right populist sentiment and that right populist frame to push the neocon propaganda. No other think tanks in D.C. that I've seen have done that effectively to that degree. No other think tanks in D.C. have a podcast where they have all these, this variety of guests that have a very specific sort of little line, you know, about China. I forgot to mention that Hudson Institute's official podcast, The Realignment, also brought on one of the hosts of the Red Scare podcast. So I'll leave you with that last tidbit and a deluge of thoughts to ponder over about the Hudson Institute. And if you are a viewer of Rising or a reader of The Hill, um, keep this in mind when you watch a Cigar Talk. Uh, see if I am actually correct. Don't believe what I'm saying and take what I'm saying at face value. Actually, you know, try to verify it. See if his talking points on that program line up with the think tank's talking points. 
see if the Hudson Institute itself is hiring people and employing people who put out this quasi-right populist dialogue. Why would a think tank do that that's so invested in war making? Well, it's because that think tank knows that in some regard, they can get the medicine and the propaganda to go down easier if they throw a little dash, a little pinch of right populism in there to make you think it's cool. And that's actually pretty sad and pathetic that that would work on anybody, but it's actually incredibly influential and successful. So thanks again for listening to Mini Roots Radio. And thank you again for being a Patreon subscriber if you're listening to this as part of our premium bonus episode. We are going to unlock this episode about a month later, so you may also be listening to it then after we've already done that. So if that's the case and you're not already a subscriber, please consider becoming one at patreon.com slash Radio to get access to future premium bonus episodes like these as soon as they come out. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.